Hello and welcome back to the Motocross Vault. My name is Tony Blazer and what this video is going to cover is a look back at Kawasaki's all-new KX250 for 1987. 87 was a really pretty uh, important transition year for Kawasaki. It was the first year they brought the new bottom link uni track to the 250 and the uh, 500. The 125 I got it in 1986. If you're not familiar, the original uni track design used a uh, what they call a bell crank, a large linkage that went up to the top of the shock and it actually moved the lever moved at the top, not the bottom. Uh, now, this was the first monoshock uh, with the linkage system. It was introduced in 1980, and Kawasaki used it from 1980 till 1985 on the 125, and then 86 on the 250s when they finally retired it. They went to the bottom link design for several reasons, mainly, I'm sure probably mostly for packaging. Basically, everybody, after they had had their own kind of ideas on what the shock worked best with the full floater and the Unitrack and uh, the original monocross, the Honda system had offered the best packaging option, meaning that uh, it was more compact than the others, and it also moved all the weight low to the chassis. The original ProLink is basically the same system we use now, where all the linkage is down low. It also allowed them to move the shock slightly forward and uh, down a little bit as well. So basically, it was better for mass centralization and getting the center of gravity lower. So eventually, after everybody tried a couple different systems, they all kind of settled on the uh, ProLink design. And Kawasaki finally instituted this in 1987. Uh, the 87 was a completely new bike this year. It's pretty crazy when you think that now a bike might stay around for at the minimum four years and sometimes maybe 10 if you're a Suzuki. Um, Kawasaki and Honda, a lot of times, they were revamping their bikes year to year. I mean, and, and we're not talking like a minor little tweak here. We're talking about like a major redesign. This 87 shares no parts with the 86. Body works all new, chassis. Uh, the engine is the same basic design, but, you know, there are a lot of refinements and changes for 87 as well. Really a significant changeover, and it only lasted one year. In 88, Kawasaki got rid of this design. Uh, very interesting, too, because I remember riding this bike back in 87. It was super slim. Um, you get on it, and it's like, it's razor thin. I had the 125, and um, actually, I think the 250 is even narrower than that. And it was really slim compared to even, like, the Hondas and stuff. And uh, and then in 88, my buddy got an 88 KX250, and I was like, what the hell? The thing is literally feels like it's twice the width and... Basically, that 88 KX250 is more or less the same design that the 500 kept until the end. If you've ever ridden one of them, uh, they're awesome machines, but they're big feeling. It has a real thick midsection. Apparently, what happened was in 87, they went super narrow, and Ron Lachine and Jeff Ward and some of the test riders thought the bike was too narrow, uh, which is interesting because, you know, in 88, Honda basically copied their really slim layout with the Honda and would stay with that for many years. So they said they had some trouble kind of gripping the bike with their knees, so they actually went fat and they went the other direction. I was never a fan, uh, although I'm fat myself, I was never a fan of a fat motorcycle, so I love that super slim layout. So it's always kind of struck me as weird that Kawasaki had by far the slimmest layout in motocross in 87, and then they went the exact opposite and went like, you know, portly in 88. Always kind of a strange deal there, but in any case, uh, we're going to go over the bike. Oh, they changed a lot of stuff, as I said. It wasn't just the layout in 87. If you like this sort of thing, check out some of the other stuff I've done on the channel. I've done lots of uh, classic uh, look back at different motorcycles uh, from Honda, Kawasaki, Suzuki, even some KTMs. I just did a retrospective on the KDX200. I did a retrospective on the CR80. did a retrospective on the XR. There's lots of stuff there. And I just published also a classic magazine review. I went back to the May 1986 issue of Dirt Wheels magazine, went through the entire issue front to back, adding my thoughts to it. And I also posted the issue at my website, themotocrossvault.com, if you'd like to just download the issue and read it for your leisure and whenever you feel like it. If you'd like to support what I do, uh, I've done some new merch here. This is my new Bradshaw shirt at the Motocross Vault. I just published a McGrath one. I have one version that has his 96CR on it and then the other version which has his 2000 Yamaha, uh, the last machine that he used to win a Supercross title.
put the bike on the front, and then on the back, I put all his championship plates. Uh, that took a lot of time trying to get all that stuff together. I tried to be as true to the way that those plates looked initially, um, and I, th I think it turned out great, personally. I mean, like I said, I'm maybe biased because I did it, but I love it. If you'd like to support the channel, like check it out. I'll put a link in the description. So here's the story of the 1987 Kawasaki KX250. As I said in the intro, the 80s were an era of great change in motocross. Manufacturers often totally revamped their lineups after only a single season, and one year's critical darling could easily turn out to be next year's critical flop. In 1986, that darling had turned out to be Honda's CR250R. After a lackluster outing in 1985, the CR had come roaring back to dominate the class with works-like suspension, a powerful new motor, and Sano looks. The CR dominated in the magazines and on the track, taking every major shootout and both AMA 250 titles with Rick Johnson at the controls. In 1986, the CR's closest competitor had been the Kawasaki KX250. The green deuce and a half offered a brawny low-end hit that riders loved, but it lacked the suspension and handling finesse of the class-leading Honda. Its non-cartridge Kiaba forks were not even close to the same performance zip code as Honda's excellent Shawa dampers. Its chassis also felt vague and sluggish compared to the razor-sharp CR. For 1987, Kawasaki looked to unseat Honda by building on the strengths of their 86 design while addressing the problems that had kept them out of the winner's circle the year before. Chief among these strengths was the Kawasaki's excellent power plant. In 1986, the KX's 249cc mill was the most advanced motor design in motocross. Its Kawasaki integrated power valve system incorporated both the variable exhaust port of the Yamaha design and the variable exhaust chamber used by Honda to provide one of the strongest power packages of 1986. The KX was not even close to as long pulling as the CR, but it provided a chunky blast of power that was both fun and fast. For 1987, Kawasaki looked to build on its success by making several significant changes to its well-regarded power plant. First up was a reconfiguring of the Born Stroke. The new motor maintained the same 249cc of displacement, but it reduced the bore by 2.6mm and increased the stroke by 5.1mm. This new 67.4mm by 70mm configuration was designed to boost the tractability and torque of the KX's already excellent low to mid power band. For 1987, Kawasaki also wanted to get their tractor or motor to pull farther on top. So they redesigned the kips slightly to provide better breathing and quicker response. Both of the kips valves and its associated parts were enlarged for 87, and the material of the valves itself was changed from steel to aluminum. The gears were also changed to plastic to further lighten weight. New porting was added to match the redesigned motor configuration, and an all-new head was paired with a reshaped dome-top piston to boost compression to 10.6 to 1. Feeding fuel to the motor was an 8-pedal carbon fiber reed valve and an all-new 38mm R-bottom McCuny carburetor. This new mixer replaced the massive 40mm unit of 1986 and was said to offer improved intake velocity for quicker response. Mounted to the carburetor was an all-new airbox that featured a free-breathing design Kawasaki coined the Fresh Air Induction System, or FAIS. This new FAIS airbox drew air from under the gas tank, and that was said to improve airflow and reduce servicing by bringing in cleaner air into the motor. Complementing the new intake system was a redesigned exhaust and a lightweight alloy silencer. On the bottom end, the new KX featured the same five speeds as 1986, but it offered new ratios that were designed to work better with the new power profile. In addition to the new gear sets, a redesigned clutch was added that looked to upgrade the 86's lackluster action. In order to accomplish that, Kawasaki swapped the steel drive plates of 86 for lighter aluminum units and reduced the thickness of the friction plates slightly. This was done to both lighten the clutch and help make the motor feel more responsive. 
To help fight the fading issues of 1986, the new clutch also added an additional spring, raising the total found in the clutch to six. To improve the feel at the lever, Kawasaki also added bushings to the actuator pushrod and needle bearings to the clutch release shaft. On the chassis side, Kawasaki dialed up an all-new frame for 1987. In 1986, the KX125 had retired that original dogbone Unitrack linkage in favor of the new bottom link design. This new design kept the Unitrack name but offered a much more compact layout and significantly improved weight distribution. With the new bottom link layout, the weight of the linkage was both reduced and placed lower on the chassis. The shock could also be repositioned to be lower on the chassis and moved forward slightly for better mass centralization. For 1987, the KX250 got this upgrade and with it an all-new frame to accommodate it. The frame remained a traditional chromoly steel unit with a single backbone and a large single down tube that split into an engine cradle at the exhaust port. New for 1987 was a fully removable alloy subframe that made servicing the shock much easier and was a welcome addition for sure. The overall steering geometry of the chassis remained unchanged from 86, but the new frame and bodywork did give the bike a completely different waist distribution, lending it a very different feel than the year before. For the redesigned Unitrack, Kawasaki did away with literally every component from the 86 KX250 rear suspension system. The new design relocated the linkage to below the shock and incorporated an all-new Kiaba damper. The new shock ditched the remote reservoir of 86 in favor of an all-new and more efficient piggyback design and offered a hard anodized shaft for greater longevity and 16 adjustments for both compression and rebound. Overall travel increased as well, moving up 0.4 inches to a full 13 inches of movement for 1987. Up front, Kawasaki missed the boat a bit in 1987 by only offering an updated version of the 43mm non-cartridge Kiyaba forks that had used in 1986. The year before, they had been soundly trounced by Honda's all-new Shawa cartridge design, and for 87, that competition only got steeper with the introduction of Suzuki's own cartridge fork system. With Honda and Suzuki both offering these sophisticated work-style damping systems, both Yamaha and Kawasaki were at a distinct disadvantage in the 1987 fork wars. For 1987, Kawasaki did try to improve their fork's mediocre performance by massaging their position-sensitive travel control valve damping system. Internally, there was an all-new compression spring and a revised damping setting to go with the new quote-unquote floating pushrod that Kawasaki claimed to offer a plusher feel. Overall travel remained unchanged at 11.8 inches, with the new fork offering 16 adjustments for compression but no external adjustments for rebound. In addition to a redesigned chassis, the new KX250 offered a completely new bodywork that freshened up its looks and offered much improved ergonomics. An all-new tank reduced the capacity by a half a gallon, but it did make up for it by offering by far the slimmest seat tank juncture in the class. The new seat and tank were so thin that many riders complained at the time that it was hard to grip the bike with their knees. The slim layout did make it easier to move around and slide forward in turns, and that gave the bike a nimbler feel than before. Most magazine testers loved the new super slim layout, but some off-roaders lamented the reduced range the smaller tank provided. Finishing off the significant changes for 1987 was an all-new front master cylinder and caliper for the KX's disc braking system. The new caliper remained a single piston design, but it featured a 12% larger piston and 20% larger pads. Kawasaki claimed this added up to a 20% increase in braking power for 1987. In addition to being more powerful, the new front brake offered improved feel through the change in pad material and also an addition of a 20mm shorter brake lever. In the rear, the brake remained largely unchanged, but a new pad was also employed to reduce the grabbiness that had plagued many riders in 1986. On the track, the new KX turned out to be one of the most fun machines to ride in 1987. 
The new long stroke motor provided the kind of churning low end rush usually reserved for open class bikes. It jumped from the first crack of the throttle and rocketed through a blistering mid-range blast. Just as in 1986, there was not much on tap above the mid-range surge, but the bike was more than capable of pulling the kicks to the front against any of its rivals. Compared to the class-leading Honda, it did not pull nearly as far on top, but it did have an equal mid-range and a much stronger low-end response. What the Honda accomplished with revs, the Kawasaki did with gobs of tractor-like torque. Both were equally effective on the track, but they required a very different riding style to make the most of their performance. On the KX, it was best to ride it like an open bike, keeping it a gear high and using its strong torque curve to pull you around the track from turn to turn. As long as you didn't try to rev it out too far, it was fun, fast, and brutally effective. While most riders love the meaty vibes, some inexperienced pilots did find its ultra-responsive low-end power slightly intimidating. There was no waiting for power to build, and the slightest twist of the throttle resulted in the bike rocketing forward. This made the KX slightly tricky out of corners and off jumps if you were imprudent with the throttle. Again, riding it like an open bike and keeping it a gear high was the best way to get the bike hooked up and prevent any unexpected sidesteps of the rear end. This strategy also helped take some of the pressure off the KX's mediocre clutch and slightly notchy transmission. Both units were improved for 1987, but neither one was anywhere close to the best performers in the class. The transmission worked well enough if you weren't screaming the engine, but if you revved it out very hard and tried to power shift it, it was difficult to get the next cog. While the KX's engine performance was praised by most, the same could not be said of its 43mm Kiaba forks. In stock condition, they were harsh in action and prone to damping spikes in the midstroke, as the conventional damper struggled to flow oil fast enough to avoid a momentary hydraulic lock. This was where the new cartridge forks excelled, and the old-style forks of the Kawasaki and Yamaha really suffered by comparison. The KX's forks were not as woefully bad as the ones found on the Yamaha, which appeared to have been set up for the moon but they were not even remotely in the same class as the excellent units found on the Honda and Suzuki. With stiffer springs and a switch to a lighter weight oil, they were at least raceable, and that was something that could not be said of the stock Yamaha's Grim Reapers. If you had the cash, the real fix was Kawasaki's accessory cartridge kit, which replaced all the forks internals and drastically improved performance. The kit did cost $300, which is roughly $700 in today's money, so it was not a cheap upgrade, but for pros and fast guys, it was more than worth the money. Outback, the situation was better for Kawasaki's new Unitrack system. The new shock performed very well in most situations, with the only complaint being a slightly dead feeling in some conditions due to its relatively heavy rebound damping. No one called it plush, but it was well controlled and perfectly raceable in stock condition. The new shock was also much more reliable than in the past, with its hard-coated shaft and rebuildable internals offering long-lasting performance. Overall, the KX's shock was rated far above the confused Honda and Jackhammer Yamaha, but also below the ultra-plush Suzuki in 1987. On the handling front, the KX remained a middle-of-the-road performer. The new layout made it easier to get forward in turns, but the frame's relatively sedate geometry and long feel prevented the KX from offering the same sort of steering precision enjoyed by the CR250. In turns, it preferred to bank off a berm rather than cut to the inside. It was better on flat ground than previous KXs, and the front end did feel slightly more planted. At speed, the KX was reasonably stable as well, and it split the difference basically right down the middle between the slightly schizoid Honda and the rock-solid Yamaha. In the rough, the bike's steering position and stability suffered, but that was more a factor of its subpar forks than any inherent problem with this chassis. In the detailing department, the KX was improved for 1987, but not without its faults. The new brakes were super powerful, with the one in front in particular offering a significant increase in performance over 86. The rear was still slightly grabby and care had to be taken not to stall the motor. Clutch action was smoother as well, but it was still not a fan of any major abuse. 
While the motor ran well and people loved the power band, foul plugs were a constant aggravation and it was always smart to bring some extra plugs with you in your toolbox. The removable rear subframe made servicing the shock much easier than ever, and the new FAIS airbox seemed to keep the air filter clean longer than the competition. The new rims proved far less brittle than in the past, but the rest of the KX's assorted nuts and bolts were the same pot metal garbage Kawasaki had been using since the 60s. Speaking of brittle, the KX's new plastic also proved to be far less durable than any other machine in the class. Just squeezing the shrouds too hard in a cold day could often crack them, and cinching down the gas cap too snugly was assured to douse your nuts with gas as the gas cap split and puked 92 octane all over your lap. As with nearly all the machines of his time, the stock bars, grips, sprockets, and chain were all garbage, but honestly this was not unexpected in 1987. Overall the bike was better built, but not really quite up to the class-leading Honda in terms of its construction. Overall, the 1987 KX250 turned out to be by far the most competitive 250 machine Kawasaki had ever offered up to that point. It employed the slimmest layout, the most powerful brakes, and the most torque in the class. It was not as blazing fast on top as the Honda, but it was easier to ride than the demanding red machine. Most of all, it was fun with its barky low-end blast and razor-thin feel. If only it had been blessed with a decent set of forks, it might well have been the king of the 1987 250 class. But as it was, it was a set of silverware away from greatness in 1987. So there you have it. That's my look back at the 1987 KX250. A machine I quite enjoyed back in 87. Like I said, I actually personally owned the 125 version, and a buddy of mine had the 250. I liked the bike. It was very thin, felt very slim. The suspension wasn't great. You know, at the time, I, my 87, I didn't really know the difference. I thought it was very soft. For me personally, um, I wasn't nearly as fat back then. But even then, I thought it was very soft suspension and stock. I think most of the magazine said an upgrade in springs were the minimum you would need to really make the bike competitive. Um, I didn't, at the time, like I said, I didn't really know what I was missing. I wasn't used to cartridge design. So if you weren't comparing it back to back with like the CR or, or the uh, RM at the time, you probably didn't notice the difference. Like I said, I, I never, I didn't really understand. I knew if something was really off back then, I was really young. And, uh, you know, if it was terrible, like my 85K, uh, my 85 YZ250, it was like a marshmallow would bottom out and everything. I, I can understand that, but... The fine-tuning nature of how to make forks works and all that stuff, it was really kind of lost to me at the time. So I thought it was a really nice bike, personally. So in any case, if you have one of these, uh, let me know what you think in the comments. I'd love to know what people who actually had them as well back then thought. Uh, probably a rare bike now. Kawasaki's, like I said, they weren't they weren't the best-built bike back then, even at the time. <laughs> I remember I was riding mine in, on a cold day, and I hit a, hit a tree, uh, like a little, little twig or whatever, and it, it cracked the, the, the radiator shroud. Then uh, I had the same problem with that gas cap. I cinched mine down and it split at the top and uh, doused my nuts with gas and my balls were on fire. Definitely not amazing. That part I definitely was not a fan of, but <laughs> I ended up putting a, um, I think I stole a gas cap off my buddy CR. He had a blown up uh, 81 Honda and we stole the gas cap and kind of put it on there to replace the stock cow even because it was such junk. So for many years there, especially in the 80s, um, the KX just had crap plastic for some reason. I remember some people were speculating that maybe the dye was the problem. The green dye was making it brittle. I don't know. In any case, it was junk. So if you <laughs> rode Cowies back then, you know what I'm talking about. So if you like this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to the channel. Give it a like. Uh, if you listen to it in podcast form, if you could rate it and review it, I would really appreciate that as well. Uh, so until we meet again, this is Tony Blazer for the Motocross Vault. Keep the rubber side down.